welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. In this episode, one of our correspondents, Amelia Herbst, sat down with Dr. Peter Langman to discuss his research on school shooters. Dr. Langman is a clinical psychologist and the foremost expert on the psychology of school shooters. He has conducted trainings and lectures about classifying school shooters and identifying potential school shooters for practitioners, educators, and law enforcement, as well as the FBI and Homeland Security. Dr. Langman has published two books, Why Kids Kill Inside the Minds of School Shooters and School Shooters, Understanding High School, College, and Adult Perpetrators. He is also a member of PPA's Interpersonal Violence Committee and co-chair of the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Subcommittee. So Amelia, tell us about what we're going to hear. So what you guys are going to hear is a pretty in-depth look at uh, how Dr. Langman started getting into school shooting research, the experience that he has gained through doing this type of research. You're also going to hear him talk about the framework that he has when he looks at these individuals and his subtypes and what those subtypes look like and examples related to those particular shooters. Uh, You're also going to hear him talk about the training that he gave at PPA in May and also his advice for clinicians and teachers and administrators on what to look for, how to handle situations, what schools should be doing or what he thinks they should be doing related to just protecting the student population from any type of violence. What were some of the things that you took from your conversation with him? I think one of the major things I took, which was really important to me, was his emphasis on how school shootings are not an easy thing to define. There's not one single answer for all of them. There's not one single type of shooter that you can look at and that all situations are going to be different in regard to them, that this isn't a sound bite, which is the words that he used. You can't quantify this down into something simple, something that we can pinpoint and then continue to prevent. And I think that's very important for all of us to hear because we're trying to create a huge difference in this field in regard to, you know, stopping violence in our schools and stopping violence to some of our most vulnerable population. But there also needs to be the reality behind it that we can't just pinpoint mental illness or violent video games or family or anything like that. There's so many other things going on that takes an individual down this path. Amelia, school shootings is a heavy topic. What was that like for you? So for me, I've already done some research related to school violence or teenagers in particular um, that are violent and take it out on their peers or their families. So for me, it didn't affect me as much as it might affect somebody else, but it is a remarkably heavy topic. And I think on my drive home after sitting down with Dr. Langman, I just had to get myself out of that headspace a bit, even though my mind was spinning with, oh my gosh, there's all of these things that we could be doing, but what if we're not doing them? And for me, it's just taking the research for what it is and being thankful that the people like Dr. Langman are out there doing this research and seeing with my own interest in it, if there's the ability for me to help in any way that I can at this point without putting too much pressure on myself or putting too much pressure on anyone else to quick solve this issue. Dr. Langman has spent a lot of time on this topic. How has he dealt with this grim material? 
one of the things that he highlighted in the interview was just being able to take the step back from all of it. He also is a clinical psychologist, so he sees clients. So this research is a huge chunk of his work, but it's not everything that he's doing. So he has that ability to take himself out of the mindset and be able to focus on another area of his work. Outside of just being able to separate himself, when we were talking post-interview, he actually told me that he likes to do things out in nature, uh, like bird watching, which I personally thought he should have said on the recording, because I think that's huge, because we see him in this hugely professional light. And as a student, as a psychologist, it's really cool to see what other professionals like us are doing in order to take care of themselves, because I think it continues to foster that idea of self-care outside of the work that we do. So get out in nature. That's kind of what I got from that. Do something else. You know, that's one of the things, Amelia, that I'm excited about in doing this podcast with PPA is to highlight the professionalism of psychologists, but also the uh, humanity and the humanness. I'm looking forward to these stories. They're, they're not just psychology stories, but they're also human stories. So thank you for doing this interview. Yeah, absolutely. This was a complete blast for me. I enjoyed getting to know Dr. Langman and being able to sit down and walk through his history and what got him to where he is today and then everything that he's learned from it and how he's trying to share that with other professionals. So to our listeners, we think school shootings is a very important topic, but we encourage you to engage in some self-care after this episode. You might consider something lighter, something that refreshes the mind and heart. You might hear some background noise during parts of the interview, and we ask that you bear with us during those segments. And now, here's the interview with Dr. Peter Langman. So, Dr. Langman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, the PPA podcast is really looking forward to being able to share your history, your story, and to talk more about this training that might be put out to the rest of the Pennsylvania psychologists. Well, thank you for your interest in my work. School shootings, how did you get into that line of research? I was actually doing my doctoral internship at a psychiatric hospital for children and adolescents in the academic year 1998-99. April 20th, 1999 was the attack at Columbine High School. Within 10 days of that attack, on April 30th, we had a 16-year-old boy admitted to the hospital with a hit list who had been engaging in some very strange and disturbing behavior, and he was flagged as a potential school shooting risk and sent to us. And I was given the case to evaluate him. And then after him, there was another potential school shooter, and another one. And after my internship, I got hired. I was there over 12 years, so I saw you know, a pretty good number of potential school shooters. This became a big piece of my work, doing risk assessment, and trying to figure out what's going on from a psychological perspective with these kids. When you initially got that first client that had the hit list and they were afraid that they were going to be a school shooter, I know you can't talk specifics, but what about that particular client made you think this is somebody that can be of concern, this isn't somebody that can be of concern, and kind of reflecting on what just happened at Columbine? You know... It was a disturbing case in multiple ways. One thing that raised my concern was I talked to his parents and 
his mother admitted she was afraid of her own son. And that meant a lot to me. You know, often in this work, what I found was parents were very dismissive of other people's concerns, thinking their child could not possibly commit an act of violence. But when parents are afraid of their own children and see them as potential dangers, that uh, meant a lot to me in terms of taking this case very seriously. I also got hold uh, of a couple of things he had written as school assignments. We got releases to communicate with the school. And one of the stories he had written was perhaps the most disturbing piece of writing I have ever seen in my life. Not only about death and killing, but dismemberment, it seemed very sadistic. And given the hit list and other factors, this seemed like a very dangerous young man. So now that we kind of get that background, from your research, what factors do you think are important when looking at potential school shooters compared to the dozens or hundreds that you've had to look at for your research? You know, one key aspect is what's called attack-related behavior. Have they actually done anything to indicate they're preparing for an attack? You know, people may make statements, they may fantasize about acts of violence, but once they've started taking steps to make it a reality, that really increases the danger. So it's not just an idea, but now they've maybe obtained some weapons or experimented with building explosives or making that hit list or diagramming the school and their path through it to get the people on the hit list knowing where they are at certain times. All of those details mean it's a much more imminent risk than a kid who may be just shooting his mouth off and making a statement that he has no intention of acting on or someone who's just thinking about it but hasn't taken any steps to make it happen. What factors are commonly misinterpreted, either by the media or by other professionals? Perhaps the biggest misconception is that school shootings are a result of bullying, that the retaliation against bullies. School shooters very rarely have targeted kids who picked on them. Doesn't mean that very few school shooters were ever teased, because you're talking middle school and high school, you know, being teased, picked on, you know, that kind of thing is just very common. It happens probably every day in every school. But it doesn't cause mass murder. And the fact that when there are specific people targeted in the attacks, they're almost never bullies. That indicates there's other factors going on. The motivation is not revenge for bullying. It's targeting other people. It may be administrators who suspended or expelled them, teachers who gave them bad grades or failed them girls who rejected them, um, parents they were angry at. You know, a fair number of school shooters have killed family members before going to school and opening fire. So the range of targeted victims, the range of motivation is much broader than the idea that these kids are just picked on and then explode against their tormentors. Interesting. So even still, it looks like that parts of the media or just that some of those common myths about the shooter being bullied and looking for those factors in the shooters that we see now. How should either we as psychologists or we as clinicians start talking about it in the media in order to get the right factors and framework for these shooters out there? We have to 
educate the public that there's no simplistic explanation. You can't point to just any one thing, whether it's bullies or video games or whatever the simplistic explanation might be that people tend to turn to. These are very rare events. There's many factors that contribute to putting someone on the path of committing mass violence. It's not just any one thing. What do you think the biggest needs in the prevention of school shootings are? For psychologists? Um, we can start with that. What about for psychologists? And I think psychologists, if they're going to do any work around school safety, need to do uh, a lot of research to understand the breadth of factors that contribute to violence among students, the range of uh, motivations, the diversity of the perpetrators. You know, they're not just loners, misfits, outcasts. Sometimes they're rather popular kids with a wide circle of friends involved in sports and other activities at school. They're not necessarily the disengaged, disaffected youth that people might think they are. And that means you have to take every you know, warning sign seriously, regardless of who it comes from, whether it looks like a bullied misfit or maybe the star of the football team or the class president. You know, anyone with the right combination of factors presenting with warning signs uh, needs to be taken seriously. I know, especially recently, um, a few of the shooters had a background in getting treatment, either been in residential or they had a private therapist outside. Are there factors that you think might have been missed or as us as psychologists might miss because we assume it might just be typical behavior or we're not viewing them in the context in which they need to be viewed? You know, it's always hard to say without talking about a specific case. You know, if you're working with someone because of a potential violence risk, it's really important, if at all possible, not to work in isolation. If you can get release assigned to talk to the parents, to talk to people at school, you'll do a much better job of evaluating or monitoring the risk than if you're just talking to the student himself. Because students can lie, they can be very convincing, they may not want to disclose what they're up to, in some cases, they may talk about their homicidal thoughts because they're troubled by them and don't want to act on those thoughts. But in other cases, acting on those thoughts is exactly what they want to do. So they're not going to tell you about them. All right. That's interesting. How about for psychologists or clinicians that happen to be in the school, educators, administrators? If you're working in the school, you have access to colleagues who also know the student. And when there's a safety concern, it's very important not to work in isolation, to work as a team. So if you're a school psychologist, if something's come up about a student, maybe making a comment about a school shooting, you know, not only talk to the student, but talk to all the students' teachers and other administrators and see who has heard what, what assignments have been handed in that might raise some red flags. And if necessary, Someone in the school then should be talking to the student's peers because if anyone knows what's about to happen, it's most likely to be other students. And that's a piece that often gets overlooked, bringing other students in to a threat assessment investigation. Have you talked with any schools or potentially any administrators or school psychologists that 
have implemented bringing other students into risk assessments? I know some schools do that. And uh, it's a challenging issue because once you do that, rumors can start, especially with social media. Parents may hear you're talking to people about it. They're going to have their concerns, obviously. So how you handle not only the process of investigation, but the communication about it and who knows what and so on, it becomes tricky. And that might be why more schools don't do it. But if you have a potential mass violence concern, you need to do your best to connect all the dots. And that means talking to anyone who might have significant information. What is one thing that psychologists can do to have a meaningful impact on preventing school shootings in their community? You know, if the schools don't already have threat assessment teams in place, I think that's something that school psychologists can advocate for. Schools may handle threats in some way, but it may not be a formalized process in terms of how you go about it, who has what responsibilities, how you work as a team, and so on. And if the people aren't trained to do a threat assessment, they're not necessarily going to know what to look for and how best to investigate concerns that are brought to them. So if districts or individual schools don't have threat assessment teams, I think advocating for that would be really important. With the current prevention programs and threat assessment programs that are out there, do you find any that work better than others and what factors do those have in order to help them? You know, I think the best one out there in terms of having research to back it up is what's called the Virginia model. And that's developed by a psychologist named Dewey Cornell down at the University of Virginia. And he's implemented it in various districts in Virginia and then followed those schools for several years and collected longitudinal data. And it's not just about preventing school shootings. That's such a rare event that how would you know if you prevented them or not, because there might not have been any in those districts anyway. But it's also about just keeping students safe in general from any kind of violence. Bullying is violence. Beating a kid up is violence. Sexual assault is violence. And using the Virginia model over a period of years, they've documented a reduction in violent incidents in those schools. With all of your research, is there a particular case that you came across that you saw as the most challenging to either conceptualize or to try to explain to other people or to understand for yourself? There's some cases out there that are very troubling that I cannot really evaluate because we just don't know enough or what we know is contradictory or not corroborated. For example, in uh, 2014, there was a shooting by a 15-year-old boy who the week before was the homecoming prince at the school's annual homecoming event. So he was that popular, he was voted by his classmates to be homecoming prince. As I said, a week later, uh, he invited by text his best friends to join him at lunch in the cafeteria. And as they all sat there at lunch, he pulled out a gun and gunned down his best friends making sense of that one in particular, it's just very challenging. It doesn't look like he was shooting his enemies, but his friends, though maybe there was some jealousy, some rivalry, his girlfriend had broken up with him, maybe one of those friends had started showing some interest, 
But why all of them? Um, one was even a cousin of his. Just very troubling and not a whole lot of like inside information came out. He didn't keep a journal. He didn't leave anything to indicate why he was doing this. So some of them continue to trouble me because there's just not enough to make any kind of sense of them. Is there a particular case that you did the research on that really sat with you in either an empathic or sympathetic way, especially as a clinical psychologist? You know, some cases it's easier to sympathize with the perpetrator than others, even though they did horrible things. Um, there's some cases of just severe mental illness, you know, early onset schizophrenia in a teenager who just can't cope and maybe the voices are telling him to kill. Um, with a strong genetic history of mental illness in the family and it just landed in him. Or some kid who just endured horrible trauma after trauma after trauma, physical abuse and sexual abuse and so on. Just horrible life circumstances. It's easier to feel badly for them than it is for those who were just um, callous, cold-blooded, psychopathic killers. You know, so as a psychologist, I can look at some and see that they were victims in various ways. Not that that justifies what they did, but you can at least have some sense that they were struggling with severe distress, mental illness, trauma, and so on. But some of the others, uh, the callousness, it's just hard to have any kind of sympathetic response to them. Absolutely. So you do a lot of training. You've done training for the FBI, you've gone into schools, you've helped clinicians try to wrap their heads around or at least get a basic framework for the factors behind school shooters. Um, you most recently completed a training in May for the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. Um, that training we're hoping to be able to make more widely available to every psychologist or psychologist in Pennsylvania. Um, what parts of that training uh, do you think are most important for those of us that want to understand this more, to look out for factors or to uh, potentially tap into this population? Well, the training basically covers two domains. The first is the perpetrators themselves. And in what I just said, I touched on a big part of the training, which was the three different psychological types. Just to review them, there's a psychopathic school shooter, the very narcissistic, entitled, callous person, lacking a conscience, lacking empathy for other people. You have the psychotic shooter, um, often schizophrenic or some other psychotic disorder. Then there's the traumatized shooter, those who just grow up in horrendous circumstances and endure overwhelming stress, including physical abuse and sometimes sexual abuse, either in the home or outside the home, with like alcoholic or drug addicted parents, violence in the home. It's just, you know, um, kind of a nightmare experience for them. So recognizing those three types is important. There are three very different pathways to what looks like the same act, committing a school shooting. So the training addresses those different types and some other factors as well. You know, what's going on in their family life, what's going on in their social life at school, what 
rejections, failures, setbacks that they experienced, maybe failing uh, a grade or doing poorly academically, maybe being suspended, um, getting in trouble with the law, rejected by girlfriends or someone breaks up with them. Um, often there's a, a series of events like that. So it's not just who they are, but what happens to them. And that's the combination of their psychology and then the social stresses that they go through um, in school. So the first part of the training is looking at specific cases to illustrate these types, uh, the psychological types, and then the examples of social stressors. The second domain that the training covers is what you do to keep people safe. And that is where I get into talking about threat assessment, how threat assessment is different than reactive procedures like lockdown drills or active shooter trainings, such as like run, hide, fight, you know, how to survive an active shooter incident. Those other things are important, but those are reactive, not preventive. You're trying to minimize the damage after there's a gunman in the building. The idea of threat assessment is hopefully you don't have the gunman in the building because you pick up on the warning signs early. So you can identify potential risk, intervene as necessary, get that person whatever services are necessary. Um, so that's where the prevention piece occurs. And to do that, you need to know the warning signs. So I talk about common warning signs. One major category is what's called leakage. They leak their intentions. They talk to somebody. They post it on social media, on a website. They announce it to their friends. They brag about what they're going to do. They warn their friends to stay away because they don't want their friends to get hurt, only other people. Maybe they try to recruit a friend to join them. All these things are different forms of leakage. And then the other big piece I cover is the concept of attack-related behavior. You know, are they just talking about it or are they taking steps to make it happen? And that, as I said, really increases the imminence, imminence of the danger. Is it possible to give examples of your three typologies? Sure. Usually in my trainings, I'll use Eric Harris as an example of a psychopathic shooter. And a quote from his writings um, to demonstrate his lack of empathy, his callousness, his sadistic tendencies, his rejection of morality, and so on. For a psychotic shooter, um, if I'm presenting to like K to 12 folks, I will often use Kip Kinkle as an example. He had early onset schizophrenia. He was hearing voices by the age of 12. He had paranoid delusions. Um, and we have some writings of his that help us have a little insight into what his mental state was. If I'm presenting to you know, college or university folks, I might use um, Sung Hui Cho, the Virginia Tech shooter. We also have writings of his. Um, he had delusions of grandeur, but primarily paranoid delusions, uh, very evident in the manifesto he wrote, but also a lot of bizarre thoughts and strange behavior and so on. For traumatized shooters, I tend to use uh, Jeffrey Weiss as an example. From 2005, Red Lake, Minnesota, um, just tragic family history. His father died by suicide. His mother 
was brain damaged in a car accident. Both had alcohol problems. Mother was physically abusive. He bounced around through various relatives' homes and foster homes, um, attempted suicide at one point. Just a, you know, a very stressful life. He summed it up as 16 years of accumulated rage. Um, so again, because we have writings of his that allow us to have some sense of what he was going through, you know, he makes a good example. Um, so I try to use shooters as examples who did leave writings behind because they give us that window into their personalities. So what do you think would be the biggest takeaway for psychologists specifically? What are you hoping they take from it? Well, I want them to understand that these things are preventable. They often are prevented. We tend not to hear about them because they don't happen. Even some thwarted attacks do make the media. A lot don't. So we can't even collect complete data on attacks that don't happen. But they do get prevented. We can prevent them. The more we know about the perpetrators, warning signs, and so on, the better job we can do to keep schools safe. So I want to give people some hope that this is not something that necessarily has to happen. Um, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. Generally, there are warning signs. Someone often takes a long time building up to this point. If you catch them early, you get them the help they need, you can keep them from committing violence, and they can continue with their lives. So it's a message of hope. We all need a message of hope, especially nowadays. What about for educators? Is there anything different that educators might get out of it? I think they need to, you know, have the same messages delivered to them in terms of understanding school shooters, getting beyond the stereotypes that they might have based on what they hear in the media, recognizing the importance of threat assessment. It's not enough just to say, well, we do our lockdown drills regularly, we have it covered. As I said, that's the reactive piece, it's not the proactive piece. So if they don't have that threat assessment process already up and running with trained people, and you know, you need policies, procedures, maybe a database to track all of this, you need that infrastructure. Um, if you don't have that, it's important that they get on board with putting that in place. So let's say there is a psychologist or practitioner or a therapist that happens to meet with a young individual who has a hit list and has been shooting their mouth off about um, how much they like Sandy Hook, since that's one of the more recent big ones. And as, as a therapist, naturally there's a duty to warn, you're concerned about harm to others. Um, what do you think, especially if they're an outpatient or private practice, how should an individual like that be handled? What's the next steps? What should be looked for? You know, every case is different. So it depends on what you know, how much the student is cooperating, how much the parents are cooperating. Um, is there any evidence he's actually planning an attack? Maybe a hit list could be attack-related behavior, or it could just be a kid making a list of people who get on his nerves with no intention of doing anything about it. So you have to balance being conscious about safety and not overreacting and 
assuming you've got a mass killer on your hands because you may not you may just have an angry kid who's making a list of people he doesn't like. So that's where you do your investigation and you not only talk to the student but talk to the student's peers, talk to the teachers. What have they heard? Has he handed in assignments? Perhaps idolizing the killer at Sandy Hook or other school shooters. Has anyone heard him make statements about carrying out an attack on a certain day, for example? Have his peers been warned away on that day? Um, if there's any way to get the police involved, I think that's a great idea because they can get a search warrant if necessary and search the student's home, confiscate his computer. Are there bombs or guns in the house? Does he have a manifesto on his computer? You know, even within the school, if he's using a school computer, can you see what messages he's written or what searches he's done online? Is he looking up how to carry out an attack, how to get a gun? You know, there's all these different aspects of conducting an investigation. And if it does look like this is a real risk, then it generally goes one of two ways. Either the legal route, if he's broken the law, he could go to juvenile detention. If no laws have been broken, he could go to you know, psychiatric facility, hospital, residential treatment, etc. So again, every case is different, but if you're going to do an investigation, you have to consider you know, all those different uh, domains to uh, explore. So typically when a school shooting starts, you're one of the first calls for a lot of media agencies, for a lot of individuals that are just looking for answers. How do you balance getting those calls, especially when information is so new? You know, I'll talk to the media, but if I don't have much to offer, I'll say that. And sometimes I'll tell them that before we even start the interview, if, if they're looking for a diagnosis and there's nothing to go on, you know. Um, I'll tell them, I can't comment on this one in particular. I can talk about school shooters more generally if they have questions, like what might make someone do this, you know, based on your research, what, uh, what are they trying to accomplish, what's their motivation. So I will steer it towards a more general conversation if there's uh, nothing known yet that as a psychologist I could use to, you know, have any particular insight into that individual. How does it feel to have to tell somebody that comes to you, especially the media, for answers and you have to start out with, I, I really can't give you much of anything until I know more? Um, I'm perfectly fine with that, you know. I can't speak beyond what I know. That's why I will see if they want a more general uh, view of the phenomenon itself rather than that particular case. Um, and sometimes they'll be familiar with my typology and they'll want to know, well, you know, which of the three categories uh, would you put the shooter in? And I just say, you know, at this point there's not enough to go on. And it may be years before there is. Um, you know, there was seven years before the Columbine documents were released by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. And it was just in the news last week or so that material from Sandy Hook is supposed to be released, but then people are fighting against it. It's already almost six years since the attack and there's still material that has not come out. So sometimes you never find out enough. Other times it is right there at the beginning, but in some cases it just takes 
years before the material is available. So you have become the go-to person for a lot of people and you have delved into research that is particularly heavy. How do you take care of yourself in those moments when the media is calling you constantly or you end up looking at a case that's particularly difficult? You know, sometimes I just try to put it aside and not deal with it for a while or do something totally unrelated to the research, the topic, you know. So, as someone that's a clinical psychologist and is doing this work, is there anything about your research or about your personal experience involved in all of this that you think would be important for people to know? Questions you might not have been asked in interviews or things you might not have been able to say in lectures? That's a tough one. I don't know. You know, usually my point, especially for the media, is you can't reduce this. There is no sound bite. And people are constantly looking for something simple. As I said, the simplistic explanations, it's, it's bullying, it's video games, it's something like that. Or even saying, well, it's mental illness. But, you know, mentally ill people don't do this any more than non-mentally ill people do. That may be a factor, like I said, with one of the three types in terms of schizophrenia. But most schizophrenics don't do this. So even to acknowledge mental illness in some cases, you can't reduce it to that. It's always more than that, you know. So one point I'm always emphasizing is even most people in these three categories, the psychopathic, psychotic, and traumatized, don't kill anybody. So they're not explanations. I think they're important steps to understanding, but by themselves they're not complete explanations, which is why I look at other factors. So I'm always fighting against the reduction of this into something simple. Have you ever had a member of the media, uh, news, print, radio, ask you about how school shootings is on the rise and what should we do to be able to slow it down? Is that something that's on the rise as far as you can tell? You know, data on school shootings is very problematic because different people define school shootings very differently. And the government data on school-related homicides is always a few years behind. So we can't say using federal data what's happening in the last three years because we don't have that data. So then you have to look you know, earlier, maybe up through 2015, and see, um, it certainly seems like mass shootings in general are on the rise. The FBI has done some research studies on those and their conclusion is mass shootings in America are becoming more frequent. Now that's not limited to school shootings, but it does seem like this phenomenon is becoming more common. But at the same time, there's also data saying that from like 1992 maybe through, let's say, 2011, 2015, violence in America has gone down, the homicide rate has gone down, the school-related homicide rate has gone down. So the data is very complicated. And it may be that overall homicides are down, but mass shootings are up. So maybe there's fewer perpetrators, but more of them are doing larger-scale attacks. So are things getting better or worse? It depends which data you're looking at. Have you ever been asked about theories on why it might be on the rise? Yes, people often ask that. <laughs> you know, no one has an answer or the answer. People have speculations. 
Um, you know, one concern is the copycat effect, contagion. The more it happens, the more it may be likely to happen because shooters have said, I want to be as famous as so-and-so. Where how, how do you get everyone to know who you are? How do you make your mark in the world? You do what so-and-so did. You kill a lot of people. So the media saturation around these incidents could inadvertently be contributing to them. So that's you know one possibility people are discussing. That's very interesting. I want to thank you so much again, Dr. Langman, for taking the time to talk to us and sharing your insight and even at times your theories and feelings behind some of what's going on in America today, especially with school shootings, and for giving us a glimpse into your training. We're looking forward to being able to share that with other people. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.